Welcome to the third episode of the Florida Gateway College podcast, hashtag FGCXP. You can find this in every podcast on your preferred podcast subscriber or on YouTube. For this episode, we are going to be joined by Dr. Sean McMahon, professor of history, and we are going to talk about the Florida Civic Literacy Exam. Dr. McMahon, it's really nice having you here. It's great to be here. Looking forward to talking about the exam, answering some questions, and maybe alleviating some fears people have about it. Awesome. So let's start by talking about the exam itself. Sure. What is it? So a few years ago, the legislature in Tallahassee decided that college students needed a a civics um, requirement above and beyond what they might do in high school. So it's it's an 80-question exam that students will take here on campus. It's not offered online, it's here on on our campus uh, that covers some aspects of American civics and government, which we're gonna go through today. Great, so who has to take it? That's a great question. Um, Anyone pursuing a college degree um, who has started enrolling in the last couple years is pretty much gonna have to take this exam. Um, Any uh, high school student in in public and many charter schools will take it at their schools. So if a dual enrollment student, uh, say a junior in high school who's one of our students, they would take it at their their high school in most cases. Um, If there's any question about it, I would just advise people to to do a grad check of their own um, uh, grad requirements for graduation or to check with their advisor. That's a great point. I know that besides the exam, that students have to take one of two classes, which is AMH 2020 or POS 1041. Correct. And by going to the grad check or speaking with an advisor, they can see where they stand on that. That's right. AMH 2020 is post-Civil War U.S. history. I teach that class in addition to some of our other instructors here. So that's the modern U.S. history. The other option is POS 1041, which is a survey of American government. Perfect. I think we should talk a little bit about important aspects that might appear in the civic literacy exam. Sure. We've divided this podcast up into some different major segments that we're going to go through to provide anyone listening to this podcast an idea of what may appear. We're going to start with the important documents. Right. The first one I want to talk about. Dr. Merman, what is the Magna Carta? We're going way back with the Magna Carta. So that was a document uh, established in Britain in the year 1215, so 800 years ago, that basically de- decreed that people have individual rights, You know that people are not just subjects of a king or queen, that they have individual rights. It's really the foundation of many of our modern freedoms. For those interested, you can actually see the Magna Carta. There are four copies still in existence, and one of them is in the Library of Congress, I think, or I think that's right. in Washington, D.C. I remember seeing it. It was incredible yes. to look at a document 800 years old and be in the type of condition it's in. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a focus here on British documents because that's the foundation of our law, our social system um, just because of the population of the colonies was overwhelmingly British. For example, we're not under Spanish traditions or French, it's English because of the number of people from England who came to the colonies. So that's the foundation here. And the British rely on the Magna Carta. Speaking of the British, the next document I want to discuss involves Britain significantly, which is 
Thomas Jefferson's written Declaration of Independence. Could um, you tell us a little bit about that document? Obviously, super important um, sort of philosophical statement of independence where the, the colonists decided in the summer of 1776 that they're no longer subjects of the king. So it's kind of related to the Magna Carta. They declared themselves free and independent states. That's the language of that document. So they established kind of a contract between themselves and a fair government. Um, there's there's some good phrases in there which are highlighted. If you ever look it up, there's phrases that, that establish that connection between people and their government and then sort of pledge themselves to be a new nation. Very important. Yeah, we the people. Very important. Yeah, consent of the government. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, consent of the governed, right? So we agree to have government in our lives. It's not always fun, but we agree to do that. But the government has to agree to be fair. If it's not fair, we can vote it out or make changes. Speaking of government, once the colonists won the war, they knew that they needed to create a form of government. So the first form of government that they created was the Articles of Confederation, which was before the U.S. Constitution. Correct. So could you tell us some things about that? Sure. So the Declaration of Independence was the summer of 76. After, after that was drafted, the state uh, members went back to their individual states and drafted state constitutions. The Virginia state constitution is actually really important um, to, to know uh, also. So the following summer, they met again in Philadelphia in 77 and said, well, we need kind of a national government. What's going what's to bring us together? So they decided on the Articles of Confederation, which is a very loose kind of uh, bottom-up type of uh, uh, system w that was state-driven. There actually was no president, if you can believe that. There was no executive under the Articles of Confederation. They didn't collect any taxes. Um, and it was pretty much um, uh, majority rules to get anything done. It, it worked for a while, but they eventually realized that they had to have a better system. The Articles of Confederation was a unicameral system, right? Meaning that there was only one house of government? It was basically ruled by committee, right? So there was one, one house that made laws and made decisions, and it was made up by representatives from each state. Could you tell me a little bit about the Federalist Papers and any specific one that is very important for students to know? Sure. So the Articles of Confederation lasted from 1777 until 87. Let me just emphasize from what I'm hearing about the test that dates are not super important, but we just do it for context, right? So uh, by, the, by 87, the decision was made, we need a better system. You know, 10 years, they needed a better system. So they drafted the Constitution, not the amendments, just the Constitution. And the states actually rejected it, which if you can believe that, the states said, what about our rights? That needs to include other things. So um, a few men, mainly James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, wrote a series of essays in honor of this federal system, saying we need, to, we need this constitution, we need a federal system. So they became known as the Federalist Papers. There's 87 of them. You don't have to know every single one of them. And they're generally known by number because they were published anonymously. And over the years, we've been able to decide, okay, Madison wrote this one, Hamilton wrote this one. Um, but they're, they're known by number, right? So each one addresses a specific part of the Constitution. For example, the presidency, the legislative process. Probably the most famous one is number 10, Federalist number 10. And that emphasizes that this is a document of compromise, that, that this is a workable system. You don't, sort of don't have to be afraid of it. It's a system of compromise and that, that things can be worked out even if there's different viewpoints. 
Um, number 51 is also an important one that emphasizes this um, uh, way that where the people's wishes will be met through the system. It'll sort of work, what the people want will sort of work its way up through the system, through the lower chambers all the way up to the executive, which we will have in the Constitution. So there's a few important ones to know by number, but that's, that's what they are, was a collection of pro-Constitution essays. Number 10 being the biggest one was the one that led to the Great Compromise. Yes, yes, which we'll, we'll get into, right, very important. They had a lot of things to work out. This is a very diverse group of people in these states, you know, New England all the way down to the Carolinas, Georgia, very different. So there was a lot of compromises. They realized that the Articles of Confederation aren't an ideal document once they really got into it. That's right. They get to Philadelphia. Right. And the Continental Congress, which was the second Continental Congress, if I'm not mistaken. And then they work together to build the U.S. Constitution. Correct. And what happened was a group of states, mainly the North, came in with their plan. And then Virginia and a few other southern states came in with their own plan. So these two groups said, this is what we need. They almost destroyed the whole conference. They almost blew it up right there. How are we ever going to work this out? Well, what they did was they said, we're going to have to compromise between these um, bigger states in New England and the smaller states uh, in the South. So it's, it's one of the great compromises of the Constitution that, that we have. So the bigger states, you're talking about population, correct? Yeah, sorry, that's right. So the bigger states said, hey, we have more people. Massachusetts, for example, um, we should get more power in this uh, lawmaking body. So the founders eventually worked out a plan where they said, okay, the lower house, which is the House of Representatives, the, the number of people on there depends on population. So, so even today, largely populated states such as Florida have a lot of influence in the House, and that is part of this compromise where the big states got more representation in the House, the House of Representatives. Whereas in the Senate, right. whether it's a state of 500,000 people like Wyoming yes. or 50 million people like California, they each have an equal representation of two senators, which allows an equitable distribution of power. Correct. So the, the small states <clears throat> said, don't don't overlook us. And they actually have a, um, a lot of recognition in the Senate, right? So the, the, every state, no matter how big or how small, has two each in the Senate. That's correct. What happens in the Senate if there is a tie in the voting? Who is the tiebreaker? So that will be the president of the Senate who has to um, uh, overturn that. That's written in the Constitution. Yeah, and that's normally the vice president of the United States. The VP would have the deciding vote mm -hmm. on that. Correct. Could you tell us a little bit about the three branches of government defined in the Constitution? Sure. So under the, under the articles, it was sort of one big committee, sort of one group. <clears throat> so in the Constitution, we have three branches that have... Uh, shared powers, but also their own unique responsibilities. So the legislative branch makes laws. Think of legislature. They're, they're the ones that make laws. That's the House plus the Senate. You hear the term Congress a lot. Congress is the collective term for the House plus the Senate. So they, they make laws, amend laws, budgets, things like that. Then we have the executive branch. So the Articles of Confederation didn't have that. But the Constitution does have an executive, um, the president. Uh, and there's specific requirements in there as well. Then they also have the judicial branch, which is the Supreme Court. 
um, which we'll get into in, in just a second. The court cases are actually a very important part of the exam as well. So the three branches depend on each other, they work with each other, but they also kind of monitor each other in this system of checks and balances so that none gets more powerful than the other. One of the major aspects of the Constitution is that it's a malleable document. Yes. It can change. Yes, that's right. If there are two-thirds majority in both houses, an amendment can pass, and it's happened several times in the history of the government. Immediately, shortly after the Constitution was ratified, they had the first 10 amendments, which were called the Bill of Rights. Really important, right. Those are important to know. Some of them we know so well, we know them by number. For example, the Second Amendment, um, protection with uh, firearms, right? The Fifth Amendment, I plead the Fifth, means I don't have to represent myself, right? So those are really important. And the founders saw them as ones that each individual was born with and, and should not be taken away from. That goes back to the Magna Carta. Actually, so we're all sort of born with those. Those are those are given. They have to be in the system, in the the law enforcement system, the criminal justice system. They're, those first ten are super important. To talk about a couple more of those first ten, the First Amendment talks about rights for citizens. You have the freedom of speech, the freedom right. of press, the right. freedom of religion, right. the right to assemble. It's really important, right? A lot of those things were were things that the British had restricted under the colonial system, and so the colonists said, "Well, when we form our own government, we want to make sure we have the ability to do that, the freedom to do those things." So the first one is really is really big. There's several in there that are important. And then the last one I want to mention is the Tenth Amendment, which is any right that's not the federal government goes to the states. Right. And then if it's not with the states, it goes to the people. I tell my students it's like an inverted pyramid, right? You start with federal government, then it goes to the states, then it goes to the people. That's right. And that's the last of the uh, Bill of Rights. And some people want to ask, well, what what is a power that belongs to the state versus what is a power that belongs to the federal government? An example of a power of the federal government is... Well, they control currency. That's right. You don't have a different monetary system if you're in California versus if you're in Texas. Correct. And then one power that's to the states is like driver's license. That's right. So voting is all voting all, all driven by states. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Um, the people, as you get down to the really local level, you might think of things like uh, schools or, you know, zoning, things like that on the smaller level that's driven by the people. Are there any other important amendments that you feel students really need to be cognizant of? Sure. I think um, the, the, the 14th is a really big one because of the, the phrase in the 14th Amendment that is equal protection, right? This was passed right after the Civil War. The intent of the 14th Amendment was that everyone, including formerly enslaved people, will be treated equally. So those, those two words, equal protection, are the foundation of any civil rights uh, case or law uh, in this country, right? If, if someone is discriminated against at work um, with uh, uh, voting, housing, like what's the law that's been violated? It's the 14th Amendment. It's a federal uh, offense. So the 14th is really big for that uh, equal protection clause. And other small aspects that are very important of the 14th Amendment was it eliminated the three-fifths compromise. Correct. And it um, basically made it difficult for Confederate officers to get back into the federal government after the Civil War ended. That's right. There's also things in there about the federal debt, which have come into play very recently as our own um, recent Congresses have dealt with debt, right? That it has to be 
um, they didn't want want former Southern uh, Confederate states to withhold votes on the national budget. So that was worked in there as well. The 14th and 13th are tied together. The 13th ended slavery. So the 13th and 14th, right after the Civil War, um, are, are, are big. 14th for those phrases, equal protection, and the other ones that you mentioned. Any other amendments that come to mind as important? Well, I think the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, from what I'm hearing, I get intel from students about what's on the exam, and that's a big one that women were given the right to vote. The influence of Abigail Adams, who was the wife of founder John Adams, when she, she lobbied for rights for women, that was an influence on women eventually getting the right to vote. It took until 1920. It's a long time. Um, but they did get that with, uh, with the amendment. So that's, that's a big one to know as well. So talking about states' rights versus federal rights, Wyoming was the first state that allowed women's suffrage, and it was something like 60 years before it became federally done under Wilson, right? Yeah, it was Wilson, right. It's, um, the, there were states out west that first did it. Wyoming and Utah were, were two. And then it's sort of the, the suffrage movement around the time of World War One, really spread it to the other states. And finally, it was approved in, uh, in 19, uh, 1920 was the first election. Yeah, the, the other amendment that I've always felt was very important toward then was um, lowering the voting age to 18. I don't know the number of that. It was 26. One. Okay, yes. Mm-hmm. That came about as a result of the protests against the Vietnam War. A lot of young people were, were protesting against the war in the 60s. And so that came in in the early 70s. It was 21. It came down to 18, which is where it is today. Yeah, and that makes sense. If somebody is going to be able to join the military representing the United States in conflict, sure. they should have a right to determine who their representatives are. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. There are also um, two amendments dealing with presidential succession, right, um, where uh, we the president is limited to two terms. Um, that's the 22nd Amendment. And then the 25th has the ability to replace a president if the president's unable to fulfill their duties as the executive. We know what to do if the president dies, right? The VP takes over. But while well, you mentioned Wilson, Wilson had a stroke during the end of his presidency. He was really unable to fulfill his duties, but he hung in there. So, you know, what if the president has a traumatic brain injury um, or some kind of long-term illness um, there is a procedure to have the, the president replaced by the VP um, through the 25th Amendment. We have this. We have the sort of chain of command. The 25th Amendment really came into place in the 1970s when Nixon and Agnew both resigned, and the Speaker of the House, who was the third in line to become president, who was Gerald Ford, became Correct. president. Right. So we need a clear line of succession. Right. In case um, something happens. That's correct. So I would encourage students to uh, do a Quizlet or note cards with each amendment so that when you see the number, it almost triggers a phrase or a sentence. What's the what's the main aspect of it? Some are some are very complicated. The 14th has several items. Usually per amendment, there's one thing, one takeaway prohibition overturning prohibition, women voting. So uh, it's it's a way to make it easy to study. And hey, there's only 27 of them. Right. So just make those note cards or quizlets and you'll be able to knock them out. Some of them, as Dr. McMahon said, are a lot easier than others. Like for me, when I used to teach this, prohibition was always very easy yes. because in the United States, you used to be able to drink when you're 18. And then now the legal age is 21. 
And so prohibition was the 18th, 18th. Amendment That's and right. the repeal of was 21. Brilliant. So yes. coming right. up with those sort of devices to remember the information that you're going to potentially see in this exam is very important. Yes, that's true. Um, and from also the exam lights, likes to emphasize things that overturn other things. When we get to court cases, we'll talk about this. But that is the only amendment that has overturned a previous one, right? It overturned the, the ban on alcohol that opened up the sale of alcohol during the Depression. We want to talk a little bit more about ideas on how you can compartmentalize concepts for the exam. So we're going to switch topics a little bit and talk about the age and consecutive years living in the U.S. for senators, House of Representative members, and the president. So what I recommend students do is to create a table. And on the table um, for each row, you would put like president, the next row would be senator, next row would be like House of Representative. And then for each column, you would put minimum age, your next column would be consecutive years in the U.S., and then your third column would be length of term. Great, right? great strategy. So, yes. so you can get this little graphic that's going to have everything there. So imagine that we have that. So it's the president, Senate, House, and then we're going to go from minimum age to consecutive years living in the U.S. to term length okay we're going to do that right now and go through the three of them right so let's start with the president okay tell us about the president with what's the minimum age years in the u.s and any other information about that sure so the president is um the minimum age for that is 35 <clears throat> we've had a few presidents in their 40s teddy roosevelt john kennedy but the minimum age is 35 um only for the president do you have the requirement of being born in the United States or in one of its territories. So you cannot be a naturalized person. You have to be a natural-born um, uh, American re citizen. Has to be here. Is it, I believe it's 14 years mm -hmm. living in the United States. So you have the age and the residency requirement. But for the president, you also have the natural-born requirement. I think the the the, uh, the founders had a little bit of a fear of as they called it, sort of foreigners coming into the United States. They wanted Americans to lead that top office. Yep, and presidential terms last four years, and there's a limit of two years or two terms or 10 years. That's right. And that's the 22nd Amendment that goes through that. That's right. So the president can be elected twice, um, and then let's say they were a vice president and the president dies with 18 months left in that term. They can serve out that 18 months and then they can be elected two more times as president, then that would be it. So we've had several presidents um, since World War II who had to step down after two terms. W. Bush, Obama, Reagan had to step down after two terms because of that amendment that was passed. And of course, that was in response to Franklin Roosevelt who was elected four times. Right, and, and passed away in office. Passed away early in his fourth term, that's right. That's right. So there was a there was a desire to put a limit on that. It goes through the Constitution. And conversely to what Dr. McMahon said, if the president passes away and the VP becomes president with three years left in the term, or even if it's two years, one month left in the term, right. that person is only able to be elected to one more term after that because then that would exceed 10 years if you were elected to two more terms. That's right. There, It's two terms or 10 years is the language in the amendment. For senators, um, the minimum age is 30. 30. Correct. 
and um, they they have to have lived in the U.S. for a certain number of years, ten. also ten years. Um, <clears throat> so they the the founders saw this as a pretty exclusive group. You only have two per state. Their term is six years, right? So they wanted it longer than the president, which is four, right? So so the the minimum age is a little bit older than the House, but it's thirty years for the Senate. So the Senate, um, in order to avoid a complete change of the guard they don't do all 100 elections the same year those elections are staggered that's correct right right you don't want a complete turnover of your senators that's right so so they um and it's a long term so they they make it so that they're they're up for re-election at different times there's also no limits on the senate um we've had people in the senate get elected six seven times there's no limits on it um the founders i think hoped that there would be uh, turnover and uh, new people um, in there, but you know it's really up to the the citizens to make those decisions at the voting booth, right? And then the last people we'll talk about are members of the House of Representatives who need to be twenty five. Twenty five, correct? Pretty young, that's right. And um, their term is only two years. So every every even numbered year, all those people in the House are up for uh, re-election. And there's 435 in the House, 435 in the House of Representatives. That number was set many years ago. It's grown a bit as the population of the U.S. has grown. There's a lot of questions saying, how can 435 people represent 300 million in this country? Uh, but there, there's been no attempt to change it. That's the number um, the, that are there, minimum age of 25. And I think they have to be in the states for seven that's right. consecutive that's right. years. Seven years, correct. So, so pretty young, um, uh, but think of the, the, the age expectancy during colonial days was maybe in their 50s. So by then they were middle-aged <laughs> right. at 25. That's right. Correct. If, if you look at the House of Representatives, it's not only states that are represented there. In the House of Representatives, each territory, so Guam, Puerto Rico, DC, et cetera, DC have representation in the House. That's correct. Right. They're all in there. And what, what I tell my students is think of that 435 as a pie. So, so how much of that pie does each state get? Each state gets something, right? There's a, there's a minimum number that each state uh, has, you get at least one, in many cases two, right? So, um, but in cases of large populations, Florida, California, you get a bigger chunk. So really quick, there are 100 US senators, two for each state, two times and there's 435 the representatives. That's correct. Which is going to lead us to our next conversation, which is about the Electoral College. Yes, it's a really unique system. Um, the founders wanted a an individual body separate from the federal government or the states to elect the president. They were really afraid of corruption. So they came up with this idea of the Electoral College. All of this, by the way, is in the 12th Amendment. So that's another one to know by number. The 12th Amendment is quite lengthy, and it goes through all of the requirements for the Electoral College. Um, and so um, basically, you it starts with the number in the House and the Senate. Well, we know how many are in the Senate per state. It's two, right? And then determining your population in the House uh, will give you that additional number. So um, it's the number in the House plus the Senate 
for each state is the number of electors that you have. And then there's three for D.C., so it's 538. 538 is the total number up for grabs right now in any election. That's right. And in the 12th Amendment, they wanted it to be 50% plus one of the electors. So the magic number to get you in the White House is 270. Right. So that's the the absolute minimum that you need to get in the White House. You want to get over that, of course, but but that's the requirement. It's a it's an interesting system and it's a two two step process. So the people vote. And of course, they have influence on the on the process. But what you're doing, for example, a Florida voting for president, you're activating the electors for that party to go to Tallahassee in the December after the election. Those people go and they certify the election. So it's a two-step process, right? The people vote, but what you're actually voting for is the electors, usually for the Democrat or Republican Party. If there's enough for an independent, they would also seat the appropriate number of electors. But the people activate those electors, then they would go to Tallahassee and uh, they would certify the election. It's in December, uh, a few weeks after the national election, which is in November. Okay. That's interesting. Everyone understands Election Day. It's the second Tuesday in November. Right. Spend a couple hours in line, vote for your candidate, throw on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or whichever outlet you want to watch. Watch the election results. Most of the time there is going to be a winner declared that evening. But the actual true vote. Yes does not occur for six weeks thereafter. That's correct. When the electors go to their state capitol and they are basically given a ballot, my understanding is, and it's basically saying, is this person the president, you know, yes or no? And, and in almost all cases, they'll say, yes, that's the person. And then that, that certifies the election with the uh, state um, uh, officials who, who declare it. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong here, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, New Hampshire is the only state in which multiple candidates can get electors because they do it by district. Okay. Yes. And every other one is basically if a candidate wins the popular vote in that state, those electors are going to vote for that candidate. In, in almost all cases, Nebraska is another one. Nebraska. Right. So it's 48 out of 50 states. So in, in, in almost all cases, it's winner take all. So, for example, if you win the popular vote in Florida by a really, really small margin, you still get all of the electors in Florida, which is a lot of electors, right? Because we have a big population. That's right. Um, in those cases, they do it by by district. You have to win the, this individual districts. Um, but in, in most cases, you know, think of California. If I win California by a really, really thin margin, say a few thousand votes out of how many are million are, are voted in, you get all of those electors to go to Sacramento and certify that election. Um, they That's the way it was set up uh, with 12th Amendment as kind of this winner-take-all system. Generally, in presidential elections, it's not always the case, but generally uh, individuals can identify certain states as being either red or blue that's right generally speaking california is a blue state meaning democrat right and texas for example or any state in the middle of the united states in that bible belt are um red states right correct 
Tell us about swing states and how they're so important in the election process. Swing states are states that that have gone back and forth between Democrats and and Republicans um, over the years. I mean, I think Florida is a swing state. It's it's um, been all over the place um, uh, in the 1900s and even in the last couple of elections. So there, it's also quite large in terms of population, a lot of electors. So it's a really important state. Um, for candidates. You want to make sure you get the vote out in, in, in Florida because it really could go either way. It's I don't think it's set one way or the other. It kind of makes it interesting. Um, uh, Ohio is usually another one. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Nevada. Yes. Um, so they've gone um, uh, back and forth. You know, even New York and California are kind of changing in some ways. Um, that are, those are both traditionally Democrat states, but I think there's there's a growing sort of uh, a conservative movement in, in those states as well. Makes it very interesting interesting. So, so that, that magic number, 270, is what candidates are looking for. I'm from Las Vegas, Nevada, and Nevada is a very interesting state. Like most states have the same aspect, which is Las Vegas is the big city there, right. and it's more blue, more Democrat than Republican. Every other part of Nevada is extremely Republican. Uh-huh. What happens is that makes it a swing state because the level and the amount of the Democratic power in one city can overstep the Republican part in the rest of the state. Right now, we have representatives, we, because I'm from Nevada, have representatives in Congress from that are Democrats, but our governor is Republican. So right. that's a perfect example of the the importance of swing states where depending on who the candidate is the type of election uh, the type of campaign they run etc it can really make a difference and you know most of the time you're talking the house or the senate are f- almost always within a couple members of being the same sure so those swing states make a a major impact in not only the presidential election, but also for members of Congress and even down to, as Dr. McMahon said earlier, that city level, that municipal level. For sure. Very important. Yeah, I'm from Georgia. So, you know, it's kind of similar to Florida in some ways you have, or Nevada, like one big city, Atlanta. And then you have a lot of rural votes as well, which tend to be red. Um, And Georgia has gone back and forth the last couple of elections. It's been super close in Georgia also. And then if you look back a few elections um, with Georgia, it's it's gone Democrat, Republican um, several times. So so, um, yeah, the, the 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 swing states are very interesting to watch as we get closer to to elections. Let's talk about our final topic of the day, which are Supreme Court cases. Supreme Court cases play a major role in the Florida Civic Literacy Exam. We are going to go over six of them today, but there are many other landmark cases. Yeah. What we recommend you do is when you are finished listening to this podcast, to go into your Canvas course and find the Florida Civic Literacy Preparation course, which goes over a lot of those landmark cases in more detail. If you do not have access to it, contact your advisor 
who will put you in the course. Yeah, the, when we can look at myself and the people from testing here at the college, get a breakdown of how students do on each of these sections, founding documents, constitution. Court cases is one that kind of trips people up a little bit, so it, it does require a good bit of study. There's a lot of good resources on our civic literacy page, videos, PowerPoints, um, Quizlets. So again, with these cases, we're only doing six, but with each case, you, you want to have, I would say, two things on your on your flashcard, your Quizlet. One is the phrase, what's the takeaway? What's the bottom line? You can really get into the details of this case, each one, but you really want to, what's the takeaway from it? And then the other one, what we want to try and do, is link it to where in the Constitution is it? What amendment or what what part of the Constitution are we uh, dealing with uh, in the Constitution? The first landmark Supreme case, court case, was in 1803. It was Marbury versus Madison. So we're looking at two parts, what the takeaway is and how it relates to the U.S. Constitution. Correct. So, gosh, anytime you see Marbury, it should instantly trigger two words, right? Judicial review. At this point, you look at the date, 1803, the, the Republic was very young. We had the presidency and the legislative branch well on its way. Um, but the Supreme Court was still kind of figuring out, well, what is our role? What do we do? Uh, and the first justice, he was chief justice for a few decades, is named John Marshall. So he was very important. I know there's a lot of M's there. Marbury Madison is the case. Marshall was the, was the chief justice. But Marshall was presented with kind of a, a, a dilemma, which, again, we don't want to get into. He had to make a really important decision. And he said, well, I, I think ultimately my job is to, to review cases. And so the phrase is judicial review. What is the function of the Supreme Court is to review laws and other court cases to see if they are constitutional. The part of the Constitution this goes with is the section of the Constitution that deals with the uh, judicial branch. So that's our Constitution section for this one. Judicial review is Marbury versus Madison. The next case we're going to talk about occurred in 1857, and it's Dred Scott versus Sanford. I really want to note the timing of this. 1857, that's four years before the Civil War began, and there is an incredible amount of tension in the country regarding slavery. Correct. My high school history teacher called this the dreaded Scott decision because you can't avoid it. Really important. So at this time in the United States, we had the, the system of slavery, which had been part of the uh, economy for um, you know, 200 years. Um, and slaves were counted as property. So let's take a little sidebar and say each slave was counted as three-fifths of one person. That that fraction is an important thing to know. So one enslaved person was sort of less than a whole person when you're doing a population count or the census. We also had states that had declared themselves free. In other words, no enslaved people could be bought, sold um, on those uh, states. They were in the North, um, Ohio, uh, Illinois uh, is one, New England. And then you had other states where the slave uh, markets and the slave system was an, an active role um, in the economy. Think of the Deep South at that point. So with Dred Scott, you had um, a, a man in the, in the military who bought uh, Dred, purchased Dred as a sort of as a personal assistant. Uh, in other words, not as a, as a field worker, but, the, but Dred Scott was quite literate and was a personal assistant to the man. He was purchased in Missouri, slave state. No problem. Well, the guy was in the military. He moved up north, 
and brought Dred with him. And Dred Scott would actually sort of, it was almost uh, uh, working on his, you know, budgets, his schedule, documents, things like that. So they moved to a northern state. The owner of Dred Scott died. And in his will, he said, all my property, which would include Dred Scott, would be passed off to his descendants. And so Dred Scott said, wait a minute, I'm in a, I'm in a free state. I should be free. That should set me free. Just where I am, the location, uh, should set me free. It, it was a messy case. It also involved military law. So it goes through, all through the courts and eventually gets the Supreme Court in 1857. And the Chief Justice took a pretty technical view um, of this and basically said uh, two things. Uh, first of all, that Mr. Scott was considered property, right, because of that three-fifths uh, fraction. So he said, you know, technically, you really can't bring this case to the court anyway because you are not a citizen, right? So you have no standing um, in the, in the um, uh, judicial system. And the other part was that um, the, the chief justice kind of wondered, well, I don't know if we can have states that are free of slavery because there is language in the Constitution that protects people's property um, no matter where they were. For, you might think of, for example, the slave catchers who went north to bring or escape slaves back. They, their authority, they said, came from the Constitution that that person was property of the owner unless they were specifically set free. So the decision was you can't sue to be free and the chief justice kind of threatened we may have to look at this designation of states in the north as being free. Um, Slaveholding states um, saw this as a great victory. They had been saying for a while that sort of once a slave always a slave Type, type decision, and the anti-slave people, the abolitionists, said, oh my gosh, they might start you know, overturning these decisions about the northern states and allow slavery up there. So it really it was part of that tension that you mentioned uh, only a couple years before the Civil War. So the takeaway is he can't sue um, for his freedom, and then um, the, you know uh, they question the ability of states to to consider themselves as free. Going back to something I had mentioned earlier that the Fourteenth Amendment does is yes. the Fourteenth Amendment abolishes the Three Fifths Compromise. So the Three Fifths Compromise, as Dr. McMahon said, is that a slave counted for three fifths of a person in population, and the reason that was was that the northern states were upset that southern states could get more representation in congress by counting slaves as one person that's right that's right and so that's another compromise that we had this the southern states agreed uh on this three-fifths compromise um but they flexed their power in other ways they actually were very powerful in the house and senate in the mid-1800s that's right so they overcame that kind of loss of representation in the house by being very forceful and pr- pr- pushing their agenda through the House and the Senate. Uh, and, and they, the, the, the pro-slave lobby in Congress, saw Dred Scott as, as a great victory for them, upheld the three-fifths. Right. The next two cases we're going to talk about occurred well after the Civil War, but definitely pertain to civil rights, and in particular, 
to segregation. Right. So the first case we're going to discuss is Plessy versus Ferguson from 1896. So you mentioned the 14th Amendment. That was passed right after the Civil War. So the federal government said equal protection. Everyone, even if you're a formerly enslaved person, has to be treated equally. What starts to happen um, in the 1870s and 80s is states were setting up um, uh, individual sections of town, different different laws, traditions, and things, sort of customs for uh, African Americans and formerly enslaved people. So it was a challenge between federal and state over um, can states do this segregation. Maybe the most um, uh, obvious example is the Mississippi codes. They actually had separate sets of laws for African Americans, the Mississippi Black Codes. So the states were saying they have the the power or the ability to segregate by race. And um, this this case occurred in Louisiana, where uh, Homer Plessy was a mixed race person who was used to kind of mixing in with mainstream uh, society. Louisiana, New Orleans today is very diverse. And he was, uh, was used to mixing in with mainstream society. Well, all of a sudden, Louisiana starts putting up these uh, barriers by race in public places, such as the courthouse, the streetcars, public places. And so he said, I, uh, I should have a right to sit wherever I want. You know, I, I was used to this. Now the state is going against this federal tradition of equal protection. So it goes to the Supreme Court. And, and basically the decision is, can the states segregate uh, people by race? And here's another real technical decision by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court basically said, well, you, the states can segregate as long as the facilities are of equal value or, or, uh, or they are equal in stature to what is being provided to white residents. So he was disputing the uh, line that was put on a streetcar. And the Supreme Court kind of said, well, a seat in the front, as long as it's equal to the seat in the back, um, that is equal That is equal protection. So the, the equal, separate but equal there, refers to the 14th Amendment. Was this a challenge to the 14th Amendment? The Supreme Court said, no, as long as the facilities are, are equal. So the physical facilities on the face of it might have looked equal, but as we see over the next few decades, they were not equal. Oh. Plus, you're over. You're discounting the the psychological stigma of having to walk past empty seats and then go to the back just because of who you were, right? So there's there's a lot of baggage tied into that separation of these public facilities and other examples of public facilities that were segregated: bathrooms, drinking drinking fountains, fountains. Yep. waiting areas. Um, it, it it bled into the school system. So this this era of segregation is known as Jim Crow, right? Jim Crow was became kind of a symbol of this racial divide that we that we had. It got to really extreme um, uh, cases here. There was a, 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 a law school in Texas that built an entire campus for one person. And they said, well, we don't want to let you in to our school. We're going to build you a separate campus. It'll be the same as the other campus for one person. I mean, it, it was really taken to an extreme. And so there's a, a lot of reformers who including the NAACP, uh, um, uh, an activist group who said, well, we're, we want to challenge this because clearly it's not equal. That leads to the next case. The next case is extremely important. It is. It regards schools 
Right. And it's Brown versus the Topeka Board of Education in 1954. Right. So they're, the, these um, uh, lawyers and, and uh, uh, others are challenging this. They're saying these facilities are not equal. And it's hard to argue in court about two seats on a streetcar. But what they were able to prove was that the learning that went on in these segregated schools was not equal to the learning that went on in the, in the white schools. And it got down to the condition of the textbooks the pay for the teachers, the the actual learning, the, the 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 we think of standardized tests. They actually used data from the black schools and the white schools and said this is not equal. And the Supreme Court said yes, we're going to overturn Plessy. The se- segregation has no place in the school system, <clears throat> right? So that was the big decision in Brown versus Topeka. Was it overturned Plessy in the school system? When you see Brown versus Topeka, that's the the, the important case that overturned that. When it says desegregation of schools, that certainly was not an overnight process. Right. So the Supreme Court didn't put a time limit on it. Um, There's many people who said they should have. The Supreme Court didn't see that kind of as their job. They said, well, we'd like it to happen as soon as possible. And there was a lot of resistance um, uh, to that. It went on. Um, uh, for into the 60s and even early 70s. When you think of the year 1954, it was many years before some places desegregated. Correct. Right. The last two cases we are going to discuss talks more about individual rights in specific cases. Yes. This. So for the next two, what's what's the part of the Constitution? It's it's in the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment, which is the due process. What is the process? of someone who's in the criminal justice system, right? It was it was abused by the British under the colonial system. So when, when America created its set of rights, they said, we want every person in the criminal justice system to have the same process, the same steps uh, to go through it. So these next two refer to the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment, which has those two words, due process. The first one is from 1963, which is Gideon versus Wainwright. So what happened there? Right. So here's a person who was kind of run through the uh, legal system for for the crime he was accused of. And he kind of said, I didn't understand what was going on. Um, I think I should have had an attorney with me. And the other side said, well, attorneys are only going to be provided if it's a, a really complex case or something like capital murder, something really serious. And and um, Gideon, played by Henry Fonda in a really good, good movie called Gideon's Trumpet, he went to court and he said, no, the, everyone deserves an attorney. Everyone should have the, the access to an attorney, uh, even for something minor simple battery or something. And the Supreme Court agreed. Um, They said, yes, part of your process, if you're in the criminal justice system, should be access to uh, an attorney. So in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment, we have uh, due process. And and thanks to Gideon, we have what's known as the public defender system, right? Taxpayer-supported attorneys who will be provided for you uh, for, for legal counsel. Henry Fonda certainly liked making movies that were very impactful with court systems because one of the most famous movies ever made was 12 angry men Mm. where henry fonda served on a jury yes um so a couple of the middle amendments if i'm not mistaken that would be the sixth seventh amendment deals with the jury system that's right that's also part of the uh due process i myself was on a jury uh here in lake city uh, in, in 2022, and it was a personal injury case, a slip and fall, and it went to court, 
And several times the attorneys said, look, we know this is ridiculous. It seems really silly, but this guy deserves his day in court. And why does he deserve it? Because of his due process. That is his due process. So even in our little local area, you know, um, uh, the jury was there because of the due process. And um, he, he uh, retained a, a professional attorney, but he could have had a public defender if, if he wanted it, part of that process. The final case we're going to cover today is Miranda versus Arizona from 1966. Another example where I think the the man said he was kind of railroaded through the system, was not told what he was accused of. And so the the court um, agreed, this court in the 50s and 60s was very activist, very um, um, uh, desiring to expand uh, uh, rights that we had through the Constitution, right? And so now the process is when when you're um, arrested or detained, you're supposed to be read your Miranda rights. It literally is called Mirandizing, right? Every law enforcement person has a card with these rights on here. One of them is you have a right to an attorney, which is from Gideon. And so you're supposed to be told of, of your rights and what you're accused of right there. Almost every citizen in the United States knows more or less what the Miranda rights say because everybody has watched some sort of TV show where they read those. That's right. That's right. We've seen police officers, you know, read people's rights or give them the Miranda rights. And it comes from this court case. And uh, that's a big one for the civic literacy test. Like I'd mentioned earlier, all the other relevant Supreme Court cases are found in that Canvas site on the civic literacy exam. If you do not have access to it, again, please refer to your advisor. We have a process at the college to get you enrolled into that course very quickly. I want to end by just asking a few more questions about the exam. Based on the feedback that you've received so far, can you describe what the student experience has been with the exam? Sure. Um, This is an 80-question multiple-choice exam. It's done on a computer. So every question has four possible answers. Um, If you're not sure of one, you can sort of pass on it and then redo it at the end after you finish all the other questions. You have a chance to review your answers before you turn them in. What I'm hearing is um, it takes about an hour. I would plan about an hour to take it. Um, be sure to look over your work. Um, it, it, it is uh, the ch- one of the really challenges is just the length of it. 80 questions is a lot looking at a screen. So, you know, um, uh, close your eyes, take a break for a bit, um, step away, uh, and, and make sure that you pace yourself as you go through it. Um, and do your best on every question. If you have absolutely no idea, maybe you can eliminate one, and then it's you're choosing one out of three, which for a Vegas person is pretty decent odds, right? Choosing one out of three. Put you in the Hall of Fame in baseball. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So um, pace yourself. Be aware that it's 80 questions. The, the minimum score is a 60% to pass, so you have to get 48 correct, 48 out of 60. You will know instantly pass or not, pass, fail. Um, if you want to, so let's say you didn't pass and you want to break down, what do I need to work on more? The testing center here can give you a breakdown of it a few days later. It usually takes them a few days to get it back. It's not an FTC thing. It's a state thing where they get the individual statistics of your test. And, and what they get, I believe, is a, is a breakdown of each of these four components. How did you do on each section? So maybe I need to brush up on my amendments or my court cases. 
that feedback a little bit after the test will will tell you those numbers. I was going to ask you what students need to do to pass the exam, but I think you, you said it very well. One is you need to have a good test-taking strategy. If you're taking a multiple-choice exam and you do not know the answer immediately, you need to do your best to eliminate potential choices. As Dr. McMahon right. said, one in four versus one in three versus one in two those odds are significantly different in your favor if you're able to eliminate one or more responses. Make sure to know these key facts. Get a good night's rest before. Don't cram. Take your time in going through this. If you try to cram before you take the test, you're not putting yourself in position to succeed. That's right. What I would recommend you doing is if you have questions about test taking itself to maybe speak with somebody in the student success center, they can go over test taking strategies regarding multiple choice exams, help you with some anxiety or other potential uh, roadblocks to make sure that you can put yourself into a position to succeed. I really think that's the key is it's multiple choice. Make sure that you are comfortable and understand the material and how to take a test to do your best to avoid that taste anxiety. That's right. And if you don't know if a question is completely thrown, then just pass it. Do it later. You know, keep your keep your wits about you. Do your best on them. Review everything and uh, give it your best shot. Our, I want to say also, Brandon, that our pass rate here is very good. Our pass rate is about 70 to 75 percent. That's pretty good. It, it ranks up there with uh, every other institution in the state. So FGC does a good job of preparing people for this exam. Uh, great news. My, my final question to you is students have taken the, the courses, whatever they need to do to get ready to take the exam. Right. How do they register for it? Through the testing center uh, here on campus, there's a link where you literally book. A, it's kind of like booking a reservation at a restaurant. You book a time slot to take the test. I think they give you two hours to take it. You don't have to take two hours, but they give you a slot. So the last hour of the day to book it would be at 3.30. That way you make sure they have enough time you know, to, to take it. Through the testing center, there's a link. They can email test center at FGC or call them to get more information. Um, go ahead and register and, uh, and knock it out. I would also say if they don't pass, they have to wait 30 days to retake it. So if you're right at the end of a semester and you want to get into the nursing program the very uh, next semester, don't back yourself into a corner. Give yourself some time to take it, prepare for it. And then if you don't pass it, um, you, you do wait that 30 days and retake it. And, and let me also say every attempt is free. There's no charge to take it. Go to the Canvas portal, get comfortable with the material, get comfortable with taking multiple choice assessments, deal and manage test anxiety the best you can, f follow these processes, and you should be very successful. Yes, we want you to succeed with this um, uh, state requirement here. We we try real hard to accommodate students. It's The test center is in the back of Building 7, where the Student Activities uh, Building is, and they'll be glad to work with you. We want you to pass this test. Dr. Wingman, thank you so much for your time today and guiding our students to put themselves in a better position to pass this exam. 
I hope it helps and good luck to everyone on the exam. I'd be glad to help out too. Looking forward to working with people on this exam. You're the best. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Come see us next time when we have our next podcast. Have a great day.